we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back, everyone. I want to shout out our star editor, Evan Enzer, for filling in for me on this intro last week. Little life update in the meantime. I moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil, where I will be for the next few months studying abroad. For any of our Brazilian listeners, reach out, hit me up, say hi. This week's episode is a treat. For another round of fellow highlights, our Class 4 fellow and fellow highlights host, Mary Bagdasarian, chatted with Justin Pung, a Toronto-based privacy and cybersecurity attorney who's a Class 4 fellow with the Foundry as well. They talk through Justin's career journey into privacy and cyber law, what it means to be a breach coach, and the connections between privacy, cyber law, and human rights. Enjoy! Hello, Justin, and welcome to Tech Policy Grind. I am very happy to have you on this fellow highlight episode. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good. Really happy to be here. Um, thanks, Mary, and I uh, appreciate the invitation. Yes, thanks a lot for jumping on this uh, and really excited to hear your story. And as already the tradition goes, I'll start with my favorite, but the broadest question on earth. uh, And we'll just ask you to share your story and what motivated you and helped you find yourself in um, and make your way into the tech policy space. So uh, I'm a privacy and cybersecurity lawyer uh, based in Toronto at Faskin Martineau Dumoulin. Uh, That's an international law firm based in Canada. Um, And so I have a pretty broad practice in privacy and cybersecurity law. Um, A lot of what I do focuses on cyber incident response, so helping uh, clients uh, navigate uh, ransomware attacks, business email compromises, uh, data exfiltration incidents. And in addition to that, I also have a broad privacy compliance practice, so helping clients comply with all the various uh, privacy law requirements across Canada. Um, I discovered my passion for privacy and cybersecurity law during my undergrad in international relations at the University of Toronto. Uh, And uh, in my third or fourth year, I can't remember which one, I took a graduate seminar on uh, the geopolitics of cyberspace. Uh, which was taught by Professor Ron Debert, uh, who's also director of the Citizen Lab. And uh, for those who are not familiar with it, the Citizen Lab is um, known as an interdisciplinary laboratory based at the University of Toronto. Uh, and its mandate is to investigate and publish reports on threats to digital freedom around the world. And most recently, they've been publishing a lot of investigation findings on the use of uh, Pegasus spyware by various government actors uh, against political activists, journalists, and other government officials. So the work is extremely impactful. Um, and in that seminar that I took, uh, Professor Debert led some really fascinating discussions uh, on topics such as state surveillance and the rise of the spyware industry. And uh, for that seminar, I wrote a research paper examining the relationship between political control and systems of surveillance and information control. So that really sparked my interest in uh, the legal and policy frameworks of privacy and cybersecurity. Uh, and from there, I went to Osgoode Hall Law School, also in Toronto, 
where I took a bit of a slightly different path away from that um, area of interest. Uh, so my degree at uh, the University of Toronto was in international relations. And so I also studied uh, human rights from a global perspective and primarily wanted to pursue a career in that field. So as a result of that, while in law school, I did a lot of volunteering uh, for various uh, human rights and civil rights initiatives, including assisting law firms and legal clinics with constitutional test case litigation. Um, ultimately, and maybe unfortunately, my dream to become an international human rights lawyer did not exactly pan out, uh, but things did still work out in other ways. Um, I joined my current law firm, Faskin, as an associate in their labor, employment, and human rights practice group, where a large part of my practice focuses or focused on compliance work and helping our institutional clients operationalize various human rights and employment rights in the workplace. And in addition to that compliance uh, work, I also worked on workplace disputes and workplace investigations. So I really found that work extremely interesting. Uh, it was very rewarding. And I practiced with that group for close to two years. Uh, but during that time, I also maintained this other interest in privacy and cybersecurity law. And occasionally I would handle a discrete workplace privacy issue, including questions on workplace surveillance, employee monitoring, uh, but privacy tended to be a relatively small part of my overall practice. Uh, that changed in early 2021, uh, where an opportunity came up within my firm. Long story short, the privacy and cybersecurity group was busy and looking to hire another associate. And I decided there was never going to be a better time to pursue uh, this other interest of mine. So I proposed an internal transfer and the firm uh, kindly facilitated this. And so um, it was uh, really great to join that group and to pivot at that point in my career. Um, I had also worked briefly with that group um, back when I was an Arkling student, which is kind of like being a legal apprentice with the firm. And so I, uh, they were familiar with me and I was familiar with their work. So the transition went pretty smoothly overall. And I've been practicing with that group for close to two years now. So um, that is my journey into the world of privacy and cybersecurity law. That's super exciting. And as someone who actually somehow ended up being a human rights lawyer, I will say that human rights are everywhere. So never say that you don't really practice human rights law. That's what I claim. I mean, I also did international litigation. And I think that's what people think about human rights law initially. Um, but I think that every everything we do is human rights work. Uh, but I want to dig deeper into what you did during your, um, I think, law school years in this regard. Like if you had any interesting volunteering experiences or some projects you worked on that you would like to share. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I worked on a mix of uh, human rights and civil rights initiatives. Um, I volunteered with uh, Pro Bono Ontario, uh, which is a not-for-profit organization that's dedicated to uh, providing low-income Ontario residents with uh, legal services for uh, employment matters, human rights matters, civil litigation matters. And so I actually volunteered at um, a small claims court in Toronto, helping low-income residents um, and uh, helping uh, triage their uh, issues so that we could connect them with uh, legal counsel on site to help represent them and to advise them on um, matters in dispute at small claims court. Um, 
I also uh, volunteered with the Chinese and Southeast Asian Legal Clinic, uh, also based in Toronto, uh, and helped them on um, a constitutional test case litigation matter in which they were essentially trying to um, I- improve the ways in which uh, refugee claimants um, could uh, succeed in um, becoming resident in Canada. Um, and so um, through a mix of those different kinds of matters, I gained a better understanding of uh, human rights law in both the uh, constitutional um, and the uh, domestic sense and how uh, us as lawyers um, who operate in that space could help um, people um, from disadvantaged communities like low-res or low-income communities, uh, like refugee communities, um, help succeed in terms of uh, achieving um, their uh, uh, their rights, their objectives in society. So, you know, I had some pretty diverse experiences in law school, volunteering on those different kinds of initiatives. And it was really rewarding for me to do that and um, a really great learning opportunity in terms of understanding the legal frameworks and how much impact they have on individual rights. That sounds great. Uh, and I also agree that there's always more we can do, um, you know, volunteering and um, just like pro bono work and all the other avenues that there are. Um, but um, going to moving on to what you do like day to day now, I think one of the goals for this series is also to highlight different kinds of jobs and just explain to early career professionals what their day-to-day may look like when they apply to jobs because those, as we know, are not clear from the job descriptions uh, that we get when applying. So would love to hear that and is, if there are things that you enjoy doing most. Yeah, so my day-to-day is broadly split between two different sides of my practice, um, which I, I kind of briefly discussed earlier. Um, one side being uh, cyber incident response, so uh, ransomware attacks, um, email compromises. Uh, anytime an organization experiences a cyber incident that impacts their IT environment, that impacts um, the data that they hold, or that impacts a third-party service provider that uh, holds data of the organization, uh, that's when we'll get involved. Uh, our role is colloquially known as uh, breach coach or breach counsel, in which we essentially quarterback the incident response. And so typically that will involve uh, forensic investigation firms. Uh, if it's a ransomware incident, it might involve bringing on a ransomware facilitator to help engage with the threat actor and see what kind of resolution can be achieved and what intelligence can be obtained. Uh, we may need to bring on an e-discovery vendor to sift through that data to better understand what kind of uh, impact we're talking about when it comes to individuals' personal information, when it comes to third parties, uh, corporate information. So that's uh, one side of my practice, cyber security incident response. Um, And uh, what I'll add to that is sometimes that incident can lead to um, uh, other kinds of legal proceedings impacting our client. Um, We just wrapped up uh, a really a relatively significant regulatory investigation against one of our clients in relation to a ransomware attack that they experienced. And so we were dealing with 
this uh, investigation by provincial privacy commissioner. Uh, it involved a lot of back and forth um, with a lot of detailed technical questions coming from the commissioner side and a lot of submissions coming from our side in consultation with the client and various stakeholders. Um, at other times, um, individuals who are impacted by these incidents can um, um, try suing the clients. Uh, so they'll bring a legal claim against them um, for grounds such as alleged negligence and the protection of their data. And so sometimes we have to respond to those kinds of legal claims. So being a breach coach or breach counsel is a, a pretty involved role. Um, you know, it can be uh, pretty exciting dealing with these kinds of incidents, but it's also a very challenging kind of scenario to deal with. We have to be crisis managers. We have to identify risks and help the clients uh, mitigate them. And so it's a pretty impactful and rewarding role uh, to be in. Uh, the other side of my practice is more on the corporate um, privacy compliance side. So helping clients with their day-to-day -day privacy needs. Um, let's say a client wants to um, switch service providers and wants to transfer sensitive employee information to a different service provider. Uh, and then the question is, um, what notice has to be provided to those employees? What consents have to be obtained? Uh, do we have to update our privacy policy? How do we structure and negotiate the service agreement with a third party provider to ensure that the data is meaningfully protected? So those kinds of um, innocuous business decisions like changing a service provider can raise all sorts of privacy questions. And that's where we come in is we help them navigate the privacy frameworks that may apply to any given scenario. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I think my follow up question or maybe not really a follow up, but my next question will be around um, privacy field currently being more of a compliance field versus being just like a practice area that is more like maybe closer situated to human rights law, because this is, I think, a perpetual question. But um, I have this discussion a lot with people practicing in your field. And I think when GDPR was being drafted and the premise of GDPR was to be more user focused and just to create a new system and framework. But now looking at the way that the laws are developing, it feels like privacy is more of a, as you also mentioned, a compliance field, which is closer to, let's say, like taxes than to human rights. So, um, and I also heard this perspective shared at the IPP conference in, in April, the Global Privacy Summit. And that was interesting for me to hear from professionals working in this field for a while. So I just, I'm curious to hear your um perspective on this uh, issue like the title could be anything but what do you feel like when you what, what does it feel like when you practice this that's a really good question and uh, I, I absolutely agree there there's definitely a tension in the understanding of what privacy law confers on individuals right is privacy law closer to human rights or is it closer to and i think you you made a really great analogy there uh, to tax law um, where you're, it's look, you're looking at it strictly from a numbers and obligations point of view. And, and that's a theme that has also been raised repeatedly by, um, our federal privacy commissioner in Canada. Um, the, and this has been raised by both the current, um, and the, uh, preceding, uh, privacy commissioner about treating, uh, privacy law more as, uh, a human rights framework. 
um, as opposed to what it is now, which I would say is closer to uh, a compliance framework, you know, imposing obligations on organizations with respect to the management of personal information. Um, and, you know, it, in in Canadian privacy laws, there's both federal and there's provincial privacy laws. You do see the same kinds of uh, themes and provisions that you see in uh, other comprehensive privacy laws like the GDPR, uh, like the CCPA, uh, like in other comprehensive privacy laws that we're seeing um, in other jurisdictions, uh, where you do have uh, core individual rights, rights of access, correction, um, of uh, deletion, etc. So, you know, those core themes prevail. And, and so there's an argument that, you know, these are substantive individual privacy rights and that it is closer to human rights. But uh, I would say right now, it's, it's not clear that there's a consensus on that. And uh, what we've actually seen uh, in Canada, and specifically in the province of Quebec, is a shift towards that human rights-centric understanding. Uh, Quebec recently revamped its provincial privacy law. Uh, it's uh, much different from what preceded it. It's, um, uh, it's been reformed in many ways. Uh, there are... Um, a lot more uh, robust provisions on um, the handling of, of personal information. And uh, I would say that it's now moved closer towards a human rights-centric uh, framework. And I, I would say that generally that's where the trend line is pointing. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that we're going to get there anytime soon. Um, you know, privacy law is, is still so dynamic. It's evolving so quickly and there's a lot of experimentation going on uh, behind the scenes in terms of how policymakers are construing of what privacy law is and what it should be. And so you're seeing, for example, in the U.S., um, you know, many states are now enacting their own privacy laws. And you are seeing some of those core themes prevail in terms of individual rights. Um, but you're also seeing very different uh, scopes of coverage, um, very different uh, rights of legal recourse when someone's privacy rights have been violated. And I, I would say that's probably a good measure of um, how significant individual privacy rights are, is looking at the legal recourse mechanism. So is there a private right of action? Um, you know, if uh, someone does have the privacy rights violated, what will they get out of making a complaint to the applicable privacy regulator? Can that privacy regulator uh, impose monetary penalties? Can they meaningfully uh, compel companies to change their privacy practices? So, you know, it, it's one thing to have privacy rights, and it's another thing to have them enforced. And so I would say uh, a good measure of how human rights-centric a privacy law framework is, is uh, the measure and the strength of its uh, legal recourse mechanism. So if there are meaningful enforcement powers, if there are meaningful individual um, uh, uh, recourse mechanisms like a private right of action, then I would say you're looking at something that's closer to a right as opposed to uh, a compliance uh, framework for the organizations that handle data. Yeah, I mean, privacy is the place to be <laughs> these days and not only given all the developments there and all the experimentation that you also mentioned. Um, thank you so much for sharing the examples from Canada. I think they are very illuminating. And let's see where the trend actually ends up taking this field. Um, so moving on to your experience at the Foundry. So 
Justin is my fellow fellow from the Foundry, so we're both members of the fourth class of fellows. Um, so what has your experience been so far? What projects did you work on? And is there anything exciting that you look forward to for the Foundry um, for the remainder of our fellowship? Yeah, it's it's been great um, being a Foundry fellow and getting to connect with uh, fellow privacy and cyber professionals and students both across the U.S. and, and around the world. Uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be part of this globally minded community where we can all focus and share passion on these issues of technology policy. How do we regulate uh, emerging tech like artificial intelligence? Um, how do we um, conceptualize and think of um, evolving privacy laws? How can we get involved in um, you know, the, the policymaking, the lawmaking uh, process uh, around those emerging frameworks? So it, it's been really great to be part of the community and to um, be a part of all the different uh, events and programs. I would say the highlight for me, in addition to that, uh, when it comes to being a Foundry Fellow, is uh, one event in particular, which is our annual uh, CyberCon event. So um, the first iteration of that was in last October um, to coincide with uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And we uh, did a virtual-only event, uh, live-streamed it on LinkedIn, and we had a really good roster of speakers um, that discussed um, various cybersecurity issues, um, you know, covering uh, the past year. Uh, so emerging threats and how to mitigate them, the rise of the spyware industry. And so there were some really great discussions that came out of that event. And so I'm super excited to be part of the planning team uh, for this year's CyberCon event. Hopefully get some really good attendance from, uh, you know, not just current fellows, but also just members of the community. So that's definitely been a highlight for me um, when it comes to being a Foundry Fellow. And uh, I'm really excited for this year's CyberCon event. Yes, I personally learned so much from last year's CyberCon and really excited that we're doing this. Uh, so best of luck uh, with CyberCon 2023. Um, Thank you. And I think uh, I will ask you my favorite question, which is um, what good or bad piece of advice did you receive when you were figuring out your way in this space? <laughs> yeah, that is uh, another great question. Um I, I can't really say that I received bad advice entering a space. And that's only because I wasn't really looking for advice. My my pathway into privacy and cybersecurity law was um, a little indirect. Um, and so I, I kind of fell into it because the opportunity came up and I identified that this was the right time to get into the space. But, you know, since then, speaking with my peers in the... Uh, the legal community, um, as I've uh, as I've embraced the practice, I would say there are two key pieces of advice that have emerged from those discussions. Uh, one is that um, you have to appreciate that you need to be constantly learning just to keep up with everything going on, because the field is so extraordinarily dynamic. It's filled with uh, constant regulatory and policy developments. Uh, there are always disruptive technological advancements that challenge our understanding and application of uh, the legal frameworks that apply. And so 
it can be difficult to keep track of everything, uh, particularly when it seems that every other week there is some new comprehensive privacy law coming out from another U.S. state or from another uh, jurisdiction. But it's important to maintain awareness of what's going on, even if you haven't necessarily read through the whole bill yourself and don't uh, and you haven't yet familiarized yourself with all of the details. It's important to just maintain awareness, and whether that's by subscribing to newsletters, listening to podcasts, or reading bulletins, or ideally a combination of all three of those activities, because there's so much insightful content out there. It's just important to maintain awareness that there are things going on to identify when uh, you know a, a new key piece of legislation has come out, and to understand that this is another consideration in your understanding of privacy and and cybersecurity law. The other piece of advice I would offer is to try to understand uh, the technology. So, you know, there's a, I think sometimes a misconception that, you know, to practice in technology law or to practice in private cybersecurity law that you have to have a technological background. Um, and that's really not true. You don't have to be an engineer or a programmer or a technologist to practice in this space. Uh, but you should try to conceptually understand the technology that underpins the legal and policy issues of the day. So whether that's getting a better understanding of how a large language model actually works, or whether that's understanding how cookies work, um, it's important to conceptually understand the technology, even if you don't actually understand uh, the uh, underlying mechanics. Uh, and I think that will make you a better privacy or cybersecurity technology professional and will be an advantage to you when it comes to practicing and advancing in this space. Um, I said I had two pieces of advice, but there's actually a third one that I think is probably worth mentioning. Uh, and the third piece of advice is to be patient, especially if you're at an early stage of your career and you're still finding your footing. Uh, or if you're just a student who is trying to break into the space once you graduate, um, I would say that if you're lucky, you can enter the space directly um, out of school. Um, or, you know, whichever uh, previous uh, career you're transitioning from. But for many others like myself, it might take some time before you find your footing and before you find the right opportunity. So during that time, I would say stay engaged, stay connected with the community, learn as much as you can constantly, volunteer, get involved with uh, any kind of useful opportunity that comes your way, and just always be on the lookout for roles that match your interests and your qualifications. Love everything you just offered, especially the. I mean, I I don't I okay, okay I don't know which one especially, but all three. But um, I mean, I guess being patient is something that we just don't appreciate enough. Um, but it's just part of the journey, I guess. Um, and you mentioned learning and uh, sheer amount of content everywhere on in this field. So, are there things that you follow some? blogs or podcasts or books that you would recommend uh, given your practice area? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say I get actually quite a lot of content out of uh, LinkedIn. And if you're not already active on LinkedIn, I would say get active on LinkedIn because it, it is an, an amazing platform to be connected with um, fellow professionals and peers in the privacy and cyber technology space. 
Uh, and especially what you want to do is identify and follow the thought leaders in the space. Uh, some of them are also active on Twitter, but quite a few of them are also very active on LinkedIn. So I would say try to follow them on whichever platform you're comfortable with. Uh, some individuals I can recommend off the top of my head include uh, Omar Tene, uh, Professor Daniel Solov, um, Odia Kagan, uh, Phil Lee. Uh, these are all great people to follow because they're very... Uh, active in terms of uh, producing and publishing content on privacy and cyber and technology. They're not shy to share their thoughts, and they always have a lot of insightful commentary. Uh, so definitely identify the thought leaders and follow them. Um, another great resource, especially on the privacy side, is to become a member of the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and to take advantage of their resources. Um, you know, I know that there's a, a membership cost, um, and a cost to get certified if you want to obtain a privacy certification uh, with them. But the IPP offers a lot of great resources once you are a member. They always have uh, a lot of great webinars organized by their various knowledge chapters around the world. And um, it's really easy to um, just schedule those in your calendar and um, just learn something about a different uh, country's uh, privacy law or cyber law framework or what you know, uh, privacy professional thinking of when it comes to implementing privacy by design. Like there's so much great content that's put out there by the IPP and uh, it's just a matter of getting involved with them and taking advantage of those resources. Um, another great area uh, for uh, those kinds of resources are um, law firms, just very generally. Um, what you want to do is identify the law firms that have an established privacy and cyber practice, subscribe to the newsletters, um, and uh, give them a follow on LinkedIn or other platforms because they will put out a lot of great bulletins and great webinars on these topics. Uh, it's all for free because it's you know for business development purposes, and you can get a lot of uh, free great content that way. Uh, last resource I would recommend is uh, podcasts. So I've become a huge podcast fan since last year, ever since I discovered the sheer amount of you know privacy and cyber technology podcasts out there. And there are so many to choose from. Um, and I, I don't think I could you know list them all here, but just give you some examples. Uh, the Privacy Beat, um, uh, Law Bites, uh, The Sunday Show by Tech Policy Press, uh, The Lawfare Podcast, sometimes focuses on uh, technology issues from a national security lens. Uh, Lock and Code is another good one. Um, the Cyber Podcast put out by uh, Vice. Uh, there's just so many great examples out there. So if you're into podcasts, if you want to um, make the best use of your time while you're just um, you know riding uh, the, the subway to work, uh, podcasts, I would say, are a really great way to digest uh, a lot of uh, this content. And again, there's so many good examples out there, but I've, I've given you a few examples of um of the ones that i really enjoy listening to so um yeah there's a ton of great content out there i would just say you just have to figure out which ones uh, you enjoy the most and and focus on keeping up with those thanks a lot justin these ones are great i think to start with and then yeah people will definitely come across others um and then i think this is already enough to um 
start learning a lot of things. Um, and it's been wonderful to chat with you and hear all about your journey into the space of cybersecurity and privacy uh, and, um, you know, what you do day to day and what advice you have for people trying to enter this space. And I would love to close our discussion with learning what is next for you and what are you excited about at this stage in your career? So I would say what's next for me is just continuing to uh, develop my legal expertise in areas of emerging technology like AI and hopefully make more of an impact when it comes to um, the effects of technology on human rights and civil rights. You know, circling back to my early areas of interest, um, I uh, recently became a junior board member with this other organization, called the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, which is this uh, New York-based civil rights organization dedicated to countering mass surveillance practices um, through advocacy and litigation. And I'm really excited to get more involved in their public interest work because um, their mandate nicely bridges two areas of interest of mine, uh, human rights and civil rights on the one hand, privacy and technology and cybersecurity on the other hand. And so I'm excited to get more involved in that kind of public interest and public uh, advocacy work. Another thing, uh, just to close this off, uh, that I'm looking forward to um, is uh, getting more involved in AI governance and AI regulation matters. Um, you know, there's obviously been so much uh, discussion on the implications of that uh, of that technology and its most recent advancements, and there's been so much regulatory development going on in major jurisdictions around the world, including in Canada. And so I'm excited to start seeing more of those issues arise from a policy perspective um, so that I can be, um, um, you know, a, a better legal advisor to my clients who are dealing with those kinds of issues and help them with their governance frameworks and how they can better address the risks of AI and also responsibly incorporate it uh, into their business operations. So those are things that I'm looking forward to. I am very excited about all the plans and initiatives that you have and definitely looking forward to seeing, um, you know, all of them come to realization. Um, thanks a lot, Justin, again. Thanks so much, Mary. Really great to have this discussion. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us, or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Mohammed, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.